We have the special privilege today of hearing uh, from Kirk Blankenship. Kirk is the pastor of Pilgrim Presbyterian Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And um, so he has been there for a couple of years now. And this weekend he led our officers retreat with all of our elders and deacons. And uh, he spoke to us about living in light of the resurrection and talked to us about salvation in light of the resurrection and mission in light of the resurrection and vocation in light of the resurrection. He's coming to continue that today. Please uh, welcome uh, a good friend of mine, Kirk Blankenship. And we have something for you here. Although if you know how this works, that's really for Shelley. So <laughs> that's right. glad you're here. Thank you, Dave. Well, I have, um, I've realized why we have pews in our church instead of uh, seats made for middle schoolers. It's to be merciful on us big people. Um, so um, for all of you folks that are struggling to fit into the furniture in here, I, I feel your pain. Well, I bring you, I br I bring you greetings from the saints um, at Pilgrim Presbyterian Church in Martinsburg and um, was in very much encouraged myself to hear the, the good labors that are going on among the officers and, and the church here um, at Potomac Hills. Um, so if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. We'll get there in just a minute. Before we get there, um, just a, a couple thoughts to kind of prime the pump as we approach the text this morning. It is a little bit intimidating to be preaching with a preaching professor sitting in the room. Um, so maybe the opening caveat might be, uh, even in West Virginia, we know what an exegetical sermon is, um, and this one is a little more thematic. So. That's really just to cover my own rear end in front of Dave, your, your wonderful pastor. So, um, But a couple questions. Uh, think about this. Uh, uh, these movies, what do these movies that I'm going to name have in common? The Matrix, the first Thor movie, for all you parents with small children, The Iron Giant, The Day the Earth Stood Still for all you folks with less than young children. Um, how about these books? Uh, the Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Actually, all the movies and all these books, they have one thing that they share in common. All of these have one of the main heroes, they sacrifice themselves so that there are others who might have more life. And yet the dying hero experiences some form of resurrection. And if we take these movies and these books like signposts from our culture, uh, and, and we, we add a few more signposts in that we get from our culture, things like the fact that Americans spend more on beauty treatments each year than the entire gross domestic product of countries like Guatemala. Um, like the fact that we no longer call them funerals, we call them celebrations of life. Or like this constant search 
that we seem to have for some kind of elixir or chemical or diet or exercise regimen to sort of halt uh, the, the, the aging process to extend life a little bit longer. If we take all these as signposts, what are they pointing to? They point to the fact that we're a culture that rebels against this notion of death. Um, Peter Berger, he was a sociologist, who writes in his book, A Rumor of Angels, he says, there seems to be a death-refusing hope at the core of humanity. In a world where we are surrounded by death on all sides, we continue to be a person, a people who say no to death. Uh, but the pandemic has placed death front and center for all of us this past year, hasn't it? Every time we see a face covering, it's a visual reminder of what we so desperately want to not to have to face. Everyone in this room has been touched by death in some form because of the coronavirus. And maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was the death of a coworker, or maybe some just, uh, really just sort of a casual acquaintance of yours. Maybe it was contracting the virus yourself and having to face the fear that death might overtake you. Maybe it was just the sheer weight of the death toll seeing that climb day after day. But the coronavirus placed two realities in front of us and squarely and unignorable. The first reality is that death comes for us all. And the second is, is, is a gnawing question. And what, if death comes for us all, what is it going to be like on the other side of the grave? Those two things cause us to consider the idea of eternity. These moments within our lives that cause us to become aware of something beyond this physical life is what the sociologist that I quoted earlier, he calls them signals of transcendence. Uh, Pablo Picasso, a friend of his, called these moments a hole torn in life. Even the great hater of Christianity and the father of postmodernism, Friedrich Nietzsche, he seemed to understand, he said, longing, longing to die, longing, and through longing not to die. Our culture's open to all sorts of things about existence beyond death. So many people deny the existence of the supernatural and yet somehow make room for this idea that ghosts might be real. Stories of people's near-death experiences sell hundreds of thousands of books each year. Many people are attracted to Eastern religions and their ideas of reincarnation. It's as if there's this, this instinct within us. It's a part of our humanity that knows there's more to this life than can be detected with our five senses. There's more to this place than meets the eye. On the one hand, we all want power that allows us to live forever, forever with a good quality of life. And yet, on the other hand, we all have to grapple with the idea that that power doesn't belong to us. Our hearts stretch out to defy death, but it, it's, always, it's always just beyond our grasp. The, the ability to defy death is just beyond us. And then we come to the Christian faith 
And we meet this story of the God who dies and rises again. And there he is. He's extending a hand out to us. Jesus says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks. And here Jesus is, and he's, He's offering us the very power that we all long for. A longing that seems to be woven into the very fabric of our humanity. And yet that longing that the power to reach beyond death is out of our reach. And so we want to read here in Revelation chapter 1 and see where Jesus comes and visits his apostle after his resurrection after Jesus' resurrection, we want to hear these words from this eyewitness to the risen Christ and see what power looks like in light of the resurrection. So if you'll look in in your copy of God's Word, I'll read starting with verse 9 and read through verse 20. Hear now the Word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you... Guard our hearts from error. Would you guide our hearts into greater truth? And would you inflame our hearts with greater love for you? Would you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit working through the Word of God? Do this for the people of God according to the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as as we open up a, a... a passage on Revelation preached by a guest preacher. I imagine that some of you might be a little bit nervous. And uh, it's easy to get caught up in trying to make sense of crazy visions and monsters and trumpets and bowls and scrolls and lampstands and so on and so forth. Um, 
G.K. Chesterton said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own interpreters. And here I stand as one of those strange creatures this morning. So, But I think it's safe to say that as we approach the book of Revelation, that the central figure of the letter is, and it is a letter, it's, a, it's an epistle, it's, it's written to be distributed among the churches. It might happen to be an apocalyptic letter, but a letter nonetheless. And so as John writes the letter that contains the visions that he's seen, we see that the main central figure is not a monster or an angel or a plague or a bowl or a prophet or anything like that. It's Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead in glory. The central figure is the one who speaks in verses 17 and 18 in our text. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. But notice where this most glorious, this indestructible, this most powerful person is in our text. Where is the risen Jesus visiting? He's visiting the Apostle John. And where's John? He's in prison. He's on a prison island called Patmos. And what, so what does Jesus do? He's the most powerful person in the universe. And what does he do? He gets involved in prison ministry. Okay. He goes and visits a prisoner. He could have gone and revealed himself to the reigning Caesar in Rome. He could have appeared in all of his glory to the, to the reigning class of Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. He could have appeared to generals or governors, um, uh, priests or politicians. All of the movers and the shakers of the ancient world were good candidates for Jesus to come and appear before. But he decides to go and visit a convict. And a convict who was not a Roman citizen. And so being a Roman citizen in that world, that means that if you were made a prisoner, you were a non-person. You, you uh, essentially, were, you had no rights. And so the risen Jesus decides to use this non-person to accomplish his divine goals. But also notice what John says back in verse 9. He says that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. If John was a partner in the tribulation, this means that the people in the churches that he was writing to, that they were a part, they were a part of that same tribulation. They were suffering. They were fellow sufferers. And what do we know about what was going on in the time when, when John wrote his book? It was that the Christians were being persecuted by the Romans. And as we read Revelation, we see this theme of martyrdom almost in every chapter of Revelation. And so Jesus, he's visiting this prisoner, this non-person, and he's using this non-person to minister to people who are suffering. The resurrected king of the universe is giving dignity to those who are rejected by their society, to those who have no status. And he's bringing comfort to those who are suffering in the midst of doing so. If you're a non-person in a culture, you have no power. If you're suffering, 
You might have some influence or some power, but you, you can't access it because of the suffering. And in our text, we see, we see Jesus bringing power to the powerless. Jesus isn't taking a person with no power out of prison and he now becomes the new Caesar of the Roman Empire or some governor over a major region. Jesus is not taking the sufferers that he is asking John to minister to. He's not taking those sufferers and make all their pain turn into pleasure and all their lottery tickets turn into winners. That's not what Jesus is all about. Jesus is taking the powerless and he's infusing their powerlessness with dignity and with purpose. And he's giving them an identity in the darkest and the most painful circum in, in the darkest times and, and in painful circumstances. And yet that darkness and that pain can't cause their purpose and their identity to be taken away because Jesus is the one who gives it to them. But what does our culture teach us? What's the sermon that our society preaches to us, regardless of whether you're a Christian or, a, or not? We live in a culture that tells us our highest good is our emotional well-being, right? It's taking what we want deep down in the innermost part of who we are, and it's going after that. That is, that is what our highest good is. We can be masters of our own destiny, we, can, we, we only have to ignore all of the demands and the expectations of all the haters out there. They de demand all the expectations of our families or the, the, the expectations that our culture uh, lays before us. I'm a, I have uh, two daughters, uh, four children, two of which are, are, are my daughters. And um, when the Disney movie Let It Go came, I mean, sorry, the Disney that's what it might as well have been. Disney movie Frozen came out. Our household was all about let it go and ad nauseum. And so this, uh, these words from a Disney princess, they really put this mindset into beautiful clarity for us. Elsa sings, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. And all the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But if you don't want to let it go like Elsa did, maybe we could uh, put a more philosophical label on it. Um, what the philosophers have called the sovereign self, where... We, we're talking about being the master of our own destiny and, and self-actualization and other more fancy terms, a little bit more sophisticated than Disney might roll out. But it's the same message, nonetheless. But think about what that message does to powerless people. Imagine preaching that sermon to a black man in the 1950s in the Jim Crow South telling him he can be anything he wants to be right after he's watched his uncle get lynched by a mob of white people, some of which were sheriff's deputies. Go and visit that person in prison and tell him, you know, it doesn't matter what the prison system says about you. It doesn't matter. You've got a felony on your record. You can be whatever you want. You just need to do you. And then when they get out of prison, go with them and help them to try to find gainful employment with a felony on their record. 
Or visit the person in a wheelchair or someone who is shut in because they've lost their ability to get up and around physically and, and go and say, you know what, throw out all those expectations of our culture and embrace your innermost desires and be what you want to be. Or maybe go to your Muslim immigrant neighbor who she gets suspicious glances every time she goes out because she's wearing a headscarf whose house has been vandalized multiple times and say to her, you know what, in our culture, you can just throw off those expectations of other people and you can just live out your deepest desires. To the powerless and to the suffering, that part of our culture is absolutely crushing. To the powerless, to tell them to take up their power and become who they want, that's nothing short of cruelty to them. But that's not what we see the resurrected Jesus doing here. He meets the Apostle John in his prison exile and he gives him purpose. And the risen Christ says, write what I'm going to show to you. He says, you may be in prison, but I'm going to give you a message that is going to set a fire in the hearts and in the minds of people who have no power and who are suffering like you. Your prison cell is not going to be able to hold back the power that my spirit is going to unleash through the words that I give to you. Jesus meets a person with no power and he imparts some of his own divine dignity and power to him right where he is in the midst of prison, in the midst of his powerlessness. But the risen Christ, he doesn't only give a message to one man. He's present among the seven golden lampstands. But let's back up for just a second and, 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 and take, a, take a glance and see who is this that's coming to talk to John. When John turns to see the voice that speaks to him, he sees a vision of the risen Jesus and he, re, he records it. But, he, but the way John records, it's not like our, we often think a recording is a one-for-one one recording. Okay, but it, it's not like our modern-day photographs. You click you know, the Polaroid and... There it is. It's right there for you to see. But John takes a patchwork quilt of images and symbols and and he takes these images and symbols that he's mined from the scriptures that he grew up with, the Hebrew scriptures. And he, he, he paints the picture using those symbols. And he says in verse 13, the primary symbol that he uses is this one who appeared before him is one like a son of man. That's, that's drawn from the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, this one like a son of man, we're told, is given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And that his kingdom should not pass away or be destroyed. And so where does John see that magnificent person? Remember, this letter is not just for John's encouragement. John sees that magnificent person, that the one like a son of man, as he is walking among the seven golden lampstands. And isn't that just wonderful? Yeah, right, Kirk. I have no idea what the seven golden lampstands are. Okay, thanks. But thankfully, I, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave that symbol of those seven golden lampstands uninterpreted. He, he tells us, what this means in the last verse, the last phrase of verse 20 in our passage, 
says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And he named them Ephesus and Pergamum and so forth. Those were real churches with real people in that day. And so Jesus isn't just ministering to one prisoner in prison. He's using that one prisoner to minister to hundreds and maybe even thousands of Christians across these cities. Jesus is the one like a son of man walking among the seven golden lampstands among his seven churches. This means that the risen Jesus, the resurrected son of man, who has all dominion and glory and kingdom that will never fail, he is present with his church. And remember that these seven churches are suffering churches. They are persecuted churches where people's loved ones are being dragged off and thrown into prison where they're being thrown to wild beasts and being torn limb from limb. They're being covered in tar and tied to poles and lit on fire as living torches for the entertainment of the Caesar and his empire. Imagine the questions rolling around in the heads of those Christians. Is the madness of Caesar going to conquer Christ? Is the beast of the Roman Empire going to devour the church? And the one like the Son of Man, the one whose eyes like a flame of fire, the resurrected King whose voice is like the roar of many waters, he says to those who belong to him, he says to his suffering bride, never, not on my watch. Though you suffer for a while like I've suffered before you, I have all dominion. Though you are persecuted for a season as I was persecuted before you, I'm with you. I am he who walks among the lampstands and you're mine and there's no rabid beast of Rome that can snatch you out of my hands. Hold on to me by faith. Identify yourself with me and with my kingdom. Base who you are on who I am. That's the message that the one like a son of man preaches to these seven suffering churches. And maybe you're here this morning and and you don't really fancy yourself as a Christian. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're more secular than you are Christian. Or you're not really sure where you fall out. Well, either way, I'm glad that you're here. Um, But regardless of where you are in your search for truth, think about this idea of who to base our identity on. And, And maybe you hear... Christ saying, base your identity on my identity, and that just feels oppressive. It doesn't feel like gaining an identity. It feels like losing your own. The idea of wrapping your purpose and your identity around something other than your own desires or your own feelings or your own impulses and aspirations, it just seems wrong. But do you think it's wrong because that's what you think or because that's what our culture has wired you to think? Because that's what Elsa's song in Let It Go has taught you how to think. How's a person to decide which internal impulses are theirs and which internal impulses are just part of their upbringing in a culture? Which ones belong to me? Which ones are hardwired into me from the outside? Remember Elsa from Frozen, right? On the one hand, she had this internal desire not to harm people, 
right? She didn't want to use her abilities because she was afraid of hurting people. That was on the one hand. But on the other hand, she had this internal drive to be free from the fear of hurting people and just cut loose. She wanted to be free from the external restraints. She really just wanted to let it go, as the song says. And how is she supposed to decide which one to go with? How, which one is she, how is she supposed to choose? Which is really her? Now, we would all say, well, it's the one where, where she doesn't bring harm to other people. That's the impulse that is really her. Well, now, now imagine if Frozen wasn't set in the, the nice, kid-friendly Disney setting that it is. Imagine if Frozen was more of a dark sort of fantasy movie where Elsa was being raised in a warrior culture. And that culture places a high value on someone who can slay lots of their enemies and give them dominance, uh, their kingdom dominance over the region. And so Elsa's got the same two internal impulses. She wants to restrain her powers and preserve life, but her warrior culture tells her that she's valued and valuable when she leads the armies into battle and, and rejoices in the, in the frozen bodies of their enemies and can return victorious to their town. She's true, she is her true self when she just lets go and lets the enemy have it. That's the other internal impulse. In that setting, how is she supposed to decide which one is really her? Do you get what I'm, I'm, I'm aiming at here? What does the world, Jesus comes to John in the middle of the prison and he says, this is, I am who you need the most of all. I need, you need to have your identity based on mine. And if, it, if the idea of basing your identity on someone else, if that, if that causes fear or anxiety, just how are we supposed to tell? Imagine Elsa in that second setting. What does the, what does, how does Elsa decide which internal reality is hers? What does the world look like in that setting of the honor-based warrior culture where she is true to herself and she just follows her heart? That's, that's the message of the gospel according to Disney. That's what it tells us to do. Follow your heart. But which part do you follow? And Jesus comes in. The, the, do, you, do you see that trying to get our identity from our own emotions, it leads to instability and hopeless confusion and incoherence? Can, can we also see that our own feelings and dreams, although they are important, that we also have part of what makes us up, you know, hardwired into our culture. John is a Jew, and he gets the dignity and the identity from that, but he's also in the Roman Empire, and they tell him he's a non-person. We receive part of who we are from outside of our families, outside of us and from the surrounding culture, from the hero stories and the narratives that we encounter in our lives. What or who is the question this morning? What or who do you ch- are you going to choose 
to shape and mold your identity. We see in our text that the resurrected Jesus meets the powerless to give them power. He visits people like the Apostle John, people that are considered in their culture as non-persons, powerless people, suffering people. He meets them and he gives them a part of his power. He visits them and, and he shows them who they can be when, if they identify themselves with him. He says to the prisoner in jail, Jesus says, if you embrace me with the innermost core of who you are, no jail can ever take away your freedom. He visits the elderly person who's worn down in body and in mind. And he says to them, when you trust me with that strength, with whatever strength you have left, then I delight as your king to accomplish more in your weakness than I did when your body and your mind were strong. Jesus visits the prostitute who has received the lustful passions of a thousand men and he says, if you will embrace one more man, if you will embrace me as the one who will not exploit you, but bring you to a place of safety, who loves both your soul and your body, then I can make you clean at the deepest levels of who you are and you will be safe in my embrace, not exploited. He visits the pastor who's been guilty of a thousand hypocrisies and made himself filthy with the pride of a million thoughts. And he says, be glad and rejoice and know that my love goes so much deeper than any of your sins have ever gone because... You're my son. And maybe you're here this morning and you think you're doing fine. You've made it this far without a, uh, without a conviction, without an addiction. And you're not being persecuted. You're not elderly. You're not a prostitute. And you're not a pastor. And so you've got no need for all of this. And so maybe this Jesus and his resurrection, maybe that's good medicine for all of you needy people out there and needy preachers like the one preaching. But, you know, maybe I think I'm doing pretty good. And if that's you this morning, then that's fine. You can come back and we can talk when you have your hole torn in life. Because death comes for us all. None of us has the power to conquer death. None of us has life in ourselves. We're all getting one day closer to the end of our physical life. And in that sense, not every last one of us is lifeless. We are dead men and women walking. And so where will we turn to get the power over death? We look in our text. A text written by a man in prison because of what he believed. Okay, so at the very least, you know, John says, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So at least John has put his money where his mouth is, okay? He's in prison because of his Christian testimony. So he's got some street cred, right? And what is the testimony that Jesus gives John for him to give to the church? Jesus says, fear not. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, if you want to get victory over death and not have death get the victory over you, you must come through me. Brothers and sisters, we can all eat all the superfoods and the right vitamin supplements. We can be on the best exercise regimen and absolutely wear out the personal trainer at the gym. And we can have the best doctors in the world and the Cadillac health insurance program. We can even turn a blind eye to the reality of death and live in denial and try not to, hard, try not to think about it too hard. But death doesn't care about all that. No one gets out of here alive. Not even Jesus got out of here alive. Jesus died. Death got victory over Jesus, but only for three days. For three days, Jesus Christ submitted to the power of death, but that power that gets all of us couldn't hold Him. And that first Easter morning, Jesus ruptured the power of death when He walked out of the grave. And he left the guilt of all of our sins behind in the grave. Because it was our sins that put him in the grave in the first place. It's just like a convict who serves their sentence and they walk out of prison a free man. They, they leave the penalty of their crimes behind when they leave the prison. And so what happened was Jesus absorbed our sins, the sins of His people, and He suffered the penalty for our sin, the death penalty. But then He rose from the dead and He left the penalty that was due our sins in the grave. And He walked out free. And now He holds the keys of death and hell. Jesus isn't just free of the charges Himself. He has the keys to the prison. And at the end of history, the one who gives power to the powerless, the one who gives uh, the identity to those in crisis, power to the identityless, the one who gives power to the lifeless, Jesus Christ, the first and the last, the living one, the one who was dead but is alive forevermore. With, he has the keys of death and hell in his hands. He, at the end of history, he's going to throw death itself into prison and death will never again touch the lives of his of his people Amen. this is the jesus who holds out the offer of more life in this life as well as the life to come for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with resurrected bodies and a renewed heaven and earth this is the jesus that says today is the day of salvation Today is the day when the new heavens and the new earth get to break in just a little bit more than they were yesterday. Today is always the day to come and to receive life from the risen Jesus. Today is the day to come and follow the one whose resurrection from the dead shows us the real meaning of power. Will you pray with me, please? A great God in heaven and Father of the living one. The one who is the first and the last. The one who died and is alive forevermore. We call to you this morning and we ask.
Father, to give us more access to Christ's, the life of the risen Christ throughout our living. Father, would you cause the, the power of your word to live on long after the echoes of the sermon and the, and the worship service have died down? Would you cause us to be captivated by the risen Christ and what it looks like to live on mission with him? Would you give us eyes to see our powerless neighbors and co-workers and other people around us and give us opportunities to be the hands and feet of Christ and to take our own power and give it away Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.